Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So reading Colossians 1, 15 to 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And so in these verses, Paul is describing an intimate relationship between creator and creation. That is, Christ is on both sides of this relationship. He is as invisible God on one side and as the firstborn of creation on the other. And so the one giving birth and the one being birthed at this time of Advent, we might think of it in that way. The power at work in the world the life and energy of the world is through him and for him and by him. He precedes all things as creator, but also as beginning. And the idea of beginning here as source, not simply in regard to time, but in an ongoing continuous relationship. He sustains. He is the origin. He's the source. He's the beginning and beginner. He's within and without. He's imminent and he is transcendent. That is, the firstborn from the dead describes a restored life. He is redeemer and creator. Now, we might describe this in a way. It's true. It needs to be said, but I think we can describe this in a way that still falls short of what Paul is saying. So bear with me here a minute. But this is called the anthropic principle, or the idea that creation is centered upon human beings. That the notion that the universe seems to have been fashioned for humans, and that God is creator. Human existence is possible because the constants of physics and the parameters of the universe and the planet, they lie within certain highly restricted ranges. As American physicist John Wheeler describes it, a life-giving factor lies at the center of the whole machinery and design of the world. So, you know, we can go through this, and part of this I understand, part of it, it loses me. I don't know what we're talking about anymore, so I'll just say the stuff I understand. But we know that the Earth's distance from the sun, we know that the makeup of the atmosphere has to be exactly right. 
We know the presence of the moon in the place that it is and the, the tides and the gravitational constant of, or the force of gravity. All of these things are fine-tuned. That the larger parts and even the smaller parts, the subatomic parts, the chemical, the material makeup, things like the thickness of the crust of the earth, things like the water vapor levels in the earth's atmosphere. It's so fine-tuned that if any of this were just slightly different, life could not exist. The rotation or the speed of the earth. To me, it seems like things are speeding up. I don't know, but if it were slightly faster or slightly slower, life could not exist. The tilt of the earth on its axis. The expansion rate of the universe has to be just right. The magnetic field of the earth, the seismic activity we need. I just, Dell said we just had an earthquake. I guess we have to have earthquakes. That literally life on earth is a necessary part of it. But if it was too great, of course we couldn't exist. But if it was too little, that it would also create unlivable conditions. I haven't even mentioned life. I haven't described DNA. You know, All of this lends us the idea that the universe is peculiarly shaped for humanity. And I think that's what the Bible teaches, that the universe was created by God. And it reflects this fact. So we have Psalms, like Psalms 19, 1 to 4. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, yet their voice is not heard, but the line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. It's clear in the words of the psalmist, or as Paul puts it, in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. I think this is true, and this needs to be said, but I think that Paul is saying something even more than this. And so if we have simply in mind physical survival. You know, we can breathe the air, we can survive, we can drink the water, we have stuff to eat. If this is what we mean by anthropocentrism or a human-centered, I think that's a fairly limited idea. It may be that it's mechanical principles. Maybe they're principles created by God and this understanding that govern the universe, and maybe they accommodate human life. What I'm saying is the anthropic principle may or may not lend itself to a specifically Christian interpretation. It certainly points to the creator. I think it points to a particular type of creator. But Paul is saying something more specific both about the creator and his relationship to the universe in these verses. Let me put this the other way around. It's not just any kind of human, but the humanity of Christ that is at the heart of creation. This anthropocentrism takes on a particular shape. Christ as the specific human center to the cosmos. The truth about the world. 
means that creation's purpose is not simply anthropocentric. I think we could say it's Christocentric. And this means the universe is personal. It's not mechanical. It means the depth of reality is not material, but living and alive. Christocentrism, I think it consists of two parts. First, Paul describes the imminent purposes of creation are to be discovered in the particulars of Christ's humanity. And I don't in any way mean to separate his humanity from his deity. And the transcendent principles determining creation are to be discovered in his deity. But again, this is in no way separated from his humanity. That is, creation is not simply made for man, but in Christ we find the very principles guiding and holding the universe together have a human shape. As 1.16 in Colossians puts it, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth. He's the creator, visible and invisible. All things have been created, he adds, through him and for him. He is the telos, he is the goal, he is the purpose, he is the means of creation. And so it's not mechanical principles, it's not impersonal laws, it's not sheer power at work in the world. That is, I think that we might even, as a Christian, or even thinking of Christ, we might think, oh, that Christ is a kind of outside purpose, holding together, you know, some other mechanical principle, perhaps. But what Paul is describing in Colossians is that, no, he is the inside principle as well. In 17, he says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the reason for the universe. And of course, this is a reason that includes us. But he's the reason in a twofold sense. The purpose, you know, what we call the teleology, the goal or the end, for which all things were created. But also as guiding principle or final power at work in creating and holding all things together. And actually Paul doesn't distinguish. He just runs this all together. He doesn't ex distinguish between the transcendent and the imminent. It's the same Christ at work in the inward principle and the outward goal. And so if we think of it in the terms of the Logos, you know, this is the title given to Jesus at the beginning of John. The word logos, it just means word, or it can mean reason, or it can mean wisdom, but it's a, it's a title for Christ. It's not that a different word or a different logic is at work in bringing all things, about all things in creation, and then bringing them to their proper end. The beginning is in the end, and the end is in the beginning. The principle for which things are created is there in the end, and it's the culmination uh, found in Christ. Christ maintains the modes of existence, which are above nature, along with the principles of being, which are according to nature. So if we think ab about the birth of Christ, as God, he was motivating principle for his own humanity. Did you hear what I just said? He is the motivating principle for his own humanity. 
But we can say, well, he was the motivating principle for humanity in general. All of creation, he tells us what is the case. And that as man, he was the revelatory principle of his own divinity. That is, the incarnation reveals to us the purposes of creation. In his incarnation, we encounter the manner in which all of creation is through him and for him. His divine energy was humanized, we might say, through its ineffable or mysterious union with the natural energy of his flesh. The principle and energy behind the incarnation, the energy of his flesh, the energy of his earthly life, is the very principle of creation. And so the Logos completing and perfecting creation in the incarnation is the Logos through whom and by whom creation was accomplished. Creation, I'll say this just point blank, creation is incarnation. Creation and incarnation are conjoined in the singular principle and purpose of the Logos. This means that given the revealed purpose and principle of creation in the incarnation that as Paul says, he's manifest in all things. He is all in all. And all things have their origin in him. John says this, without him, apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. And this manifestation, this revelation, is according to the being of each existing thing. It's not as if the fullness of the principle of the Logos is evident in every existing thing. But I think we see Christ peering back at us in creation. The sum of all things, their logic and end, is in the Logos. As one ancient theologian put it, each and everything, whether angels or men or animals, insofar as it has been created in accordance with the Logos that exists in and with God, is and is called a portion of God. Precisely because of that Logos, which, as we said, pre-exists in God. So when we say it this way, the Logos, or the Christocentric principle, indicates that we encounter God himself in creation. Now, I don't mean to confuse creator and creation, but certainly we encounter God in his creation. That is, there is no buffer. There is no impersonal force. But the power sustaining the universe is divine. But even this, I I think I'm still not getting it. That is, the God of monotheism is not what we're talking about. It's not the God of pantheism. It's Christ, the person of Christ that we encounter in the gospel. The one born of Mary in Bethlehem. The incarnate one is creator, and we know that creator specifically in the person of Jesus. And so whether great or small, by his word and in his wisdom, he created and he continues to hold all things together, the universals as well as the particulars. And inasmuch as he sums up or recapitulates all things in himself, it is owing to him that all things exist and remain in existence. And it is from him that all things came to be in a certain way. Now, that's not the the full purpose of Colossians yet. I haven't really touched upon the heart of it. And that is Paul's purpose in Colossians is not simply to explain Christ 
as creator and sustainer, but also as redeemer. And again, he's putting all this, he's running it all together. That creation's purpose was thwarted. It was momentarily diverted. Those who were given dominion and responsibility, free will over creation, have in some way thwarted God's purposes. But this too is the purpose of the incarnation. Paul says he is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Creation is diverted and he redirects it. He is recreating. He is redeeming. Creation and recreation or creation and incarnation. They're not of a separate order. He is at the head of creation as source and purpose, and he's the head of redemption, filling out or overcoming any counter order or counter purpose that might thwart the principle of creation. And so by means of his life, his death, his resurrection, Paul says he's restoring to humanity the image of God. John says this in John 1.1, he is the beginning of creation. He is the beginning of redemption. As Paul says in verse 18, he is the firstborn from the dead. And so all of creation is being deified. As Paul says, he is becoming all in all. Colossians 3.9, a couple chapters later, Paul says, because of this, do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Creation and recreation are tied together. Humanity is being restored to its true image, to the image of Christ, to the purposes of creation. And so no longer do we do identity on the basis of ethnic identity, Jew, Gentile, on the basis of religious identity, on the basis of gendered identity, on the basis of social identity. You know, you could just go through. Paul, in various books, names these various pairs, ways of doing identity apart from Christ. And he says we no longer do identity in that way. But we understand who we are through Christ. And Christ, then, is all in all. And so through Christ, God alone, who in a manner befitting his goodness, wholly interpenetrates all who are worthy. And this is both Hebrews and Corinthians. It describes that he has brought all things into subjection to himself. In Hebrews 2.8, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Sometimes we might think the universe is out of control. He's bringing it back under control. Even the human aspect of the universe. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, 
that God may be all in all. And so it's on the basis of this subjection of all things to the Son, all things being restored, and the Son's subjection to the Father, that what has defied him, what has rebelled, this rebellion is defeated. As it says in 1 Corinthians, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death made its entry among those given free will and confirmed at their expense, by our expense, by the power of corruption, and by eliminating any wish that might contravene his will, death is defeated. You know, it might appear the anthropic principle doesn't work, that it's defeated by death, it's defeated by deadly accidents, it's defeated by random death, or even in the human orientation to self-destructiveness. And the principle of death might appear to reign over the principle of life, over the human-centered, life-giving nature of the universe. But in Christ, the centrality of the human is restored. In Christ, who defeats death. And so this is not the destruction of self-determination. I think it's the restoration of self-determination. It's the restoration of the power in which we were created. This is from Maximus. He states it, affirming our fixed and unchangeable natural disposition that is a voluntary surrender of the will, so that from the same source whence we received our being, we should also long to receive being moved. Like an image that has ascended to its archetype, corresponding to it completely, we take on the icon, the image of Christ, in the way that an impression corresponds to its stamp so that henceforth it has neither the inclination nor the ability to be carried elsewhere. That is, that human desire is channeled in the way that it was meant to be channeled, clearly and accurately. It is no longer able to desire what should not be desired, for it will receive the divine energy, that we will desire God, or rather it will have become God. We will have become participants in who God is, experiencing far greater pleasure, Maximus says, in transcending the things that exist and are perceived to be naturally its own. And so our natural disposition is a good thing, is that fixed and unchangeable purpose for which and in which we were created, and that's restored. This is the motive force within creation, and within redemption. And this motive force, through our acquiescence, through our participation, takes its place within us. As we are filled with the divine energy of the Spirit, we become that for which we were created. This is what Paul says, this is my conclusion. He has now reconciled you to the divine purpose in his fleshly body, through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. As he will be in and through you, he is all in all. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom 
by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.